0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, we speak with Alice Rivlin, an economist who really has done it all. She's worked in some capacity within the administrations of presidents Lyndon Johnson, Bill Clinton, and Barack Obama. She was vice chair of the Fed for a stint in the 1990s, and she was the first ever director of the Congressional Budget Office. On top of that, she's published work on a wide variety of economic topics and was an early specialist in designing ways to measure the outcomes of new economic ideas and programs. She even spent a couple of years as a newspaper columnist. At 86 years young, she has the energy and mental acuity of someone one-third her age, and in this conversation we discuss her long career how it informs her understanding of the strange current moment for economic policymaking, the threats to some of those institutions that she's worked for, and what she's up to now. This conversation took place about a month ago at the Brookings Institution, where Alice now works. Here it is. Alice, thanks for agreeing to do the show. Delighted to do it. I want to start with a couple of general questions, because you've had such a rich and varied career And I have a list here of all the things you've done, and I'm probably leaving something out, but you've worked in the federal government of at least three different presidential administrations in some capacity, founding director of the Congressional Budget Office at the Fed. You've published books. You've taught. You've done research. You've been president of the American Economics Association, and you've even had a brief stint as an opinion columnist at The Washington Post. I did. Here's my first question is, when you first started on your economics career— Were you very deliberate? Did you anticipate that your career would go as it did? Or were you a little bit more serendipitous and willing to just go wherever the opportunities opened
1: up? It felt like serendipity, but there may have been some method in it. It's sort of interesting that when you ask that question of women, they generally say, I was very lucky, I was in the right place at the right time, and that's true and men will tell you oh i planned this all out and i had a strategy <laughs> both are partly true probably but, but there's research on this so i had a strong interest from my teenage years in public policy i knew i wanted to somehow be involved in making the world better and that was the idealistic post-World War II generation. We were members of organizations like World Federalists, and we had very big ideas about world peace and what we could do to further the cause. And I got interested in economics, but with a public policy bent. I didn't want to do theoretical economics, or I probably wouldn't have been capable of it, but in any case, I wanted to use my economics in public service.
0: Let me now turn to your time in the administration of President Lyndon Johnson. This was obviously a time when a lot of the uh, Great Society programs were coming online. You were an advocate for systematic analysis, a way to evaluate government programs and how they acted. You published a book. It was called Systematic Thinking for Social Action. It was just reissued by Brookings a couple of years ago. I guess my first question is, How do you think we've done? Has the U.S. become as good as you'd hoped in terms of evaluating the quality of its economic programs?
1: When I wrote that book, I thought it would have a short shelf life because I hoped that we were going to solve all these problems. It was about health care and poverty and improving education and Early childhood education, but that was pretty naive. We've made a lot of progress, but we're still talking about the same problems. And we've made uneven progress in actually measuring what public programs do and how effective they are.
0: Where is it worked out, and where do you think it's still falling way short?
1: Well, I went to a meeting this morning. It was about early childhood education, preschool, pre K, as we now say and how much it changes the lives of children who go through it. There's pretty good evidence now that pre-K makes a difference, but also that if it's not followed up with good education in the early elementary years, that the benefits fade out. That set of propositions hasn't changed very much. We knew that about the early Head Start evaluations. And the work is more sophisticated, but basically the story is still the same.
0: In the time after you served under President Lyndon Johnson, I was intrigued to learn only recently and in preparation for this podcast that you were an opinion columnist for the Washington Post. I knew about many of the other facets of your career. Uh, You're pretty well known at this point. I had no idea that you once spent some time uh, as a writer. How did you like that? How do you... Think back to your time as a writer. I
1: loved, it. and that was a true accident. Meg Greenfield, who was uh, later the editorial page editor, but then was the deputy editor, she and I were friends, and they lost their economics editorial writer suddenly. And she called me in a panic and said, we haven't got anybody who knows anything about economics. Can you help?
0: This is in the early and 1970s.
1: This was in 71. Mm-hmm. And I had just finished a bookings book about higher education. And I was uh, ready for something else. So I said, sure. And I went over to the Washington Post for about four months until they found somebody else. It was the summer of 71. Nixon was president. And at the beginning, it didn't seem like anything very important was going on in the economy. And then all of a sudden, it was. We went off the gold standard. We had wage and price controls. There were all sorts of interesting things to write about. And uh, I was the voice of the Washington Post because nobody else on the editorial board understood any, <laughs> any <of that. laughs> understood any of that stuff. And so we would have long discussions in the editorial board meeting about what we should say about the departure of the Washington senator's base baseball team. But when it came to the economics issues, I would say what I thought we thought. And that was kind of it. That was enormous fun for a young economist. I wrote both editorials and signed columns for quite a lot of them.
0: What was your view on uh, getting off the gold standard and later leaving the uh, various FX peg? Did you think that that was at the time a good idea, or did you still believe that a lot of the stability from the Bretton Woods period was still valuable and worth holding on to?
1: It's hard to remember all these years (laughs) later, but uh, I think we were all moving toward flexible exchange rates were a good solution to a problem. The uh, fixed exchange rates had just been too rigid. Right.
0: And then it was uh, a few years after that that you were the founding director of the Congressional Budget Office. How were you... uh, brought on board or were you in the early discussions when it was still something that was like part of the legislation that would eventually lead to its creation
1: I was not in on the legislation I did testify and ironically I testified that they probably didn 't need a congressional budget office that the staffs of the budget committees could handle this analytical job I came to realize that that was absolutely wrong but When the act was passed, the Budget and Impoundment Act of uh, 1974, which created the Congressional Budget Office, they looked around for people who might be able to head this. They unfortunately decided to have two search processes, one in the Senate and one in the House, which was a big mistake. They never did that again. But I was the candidate of the Senate, and another very well-qualified man was the candidate of the House, and they couldn't resolve it for quite a long time. Then, finally, it was resolved by a remarkable accident, and I love this story. The uh, then-chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee was a Arkansas congressman named Wilbur Mills who was a very powerful congressman but unfortunately had a serious drinking problem which nobody knew and he had a dramatic incident in which he was with an exotic dancer named Fanny Fox Fanny leaped out of the congressman's car and into the tidal basin she was okay. The tidal basin is shallow. They got her out. But that was the end of his career. And what, you may ask, does this have to do with me? Well, that shuffled the deck because the then chair of the House Budget Committee moved up to chair Ways and means. The new chair hadn't been involved in the selection process. He said to the Senate chairman, Senator Muskie, if you want Rivlin, it's okay with me. And so I owed my job to Fannie Fox. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, what about the job appealed to you? Uh, why did you think that like this would be a really great fit for you?
1: Oh, it was a very exciting thing to do. I mean, I had written about uh, budget process and improving the budget process and doing more analysis and better projections and all of that kind of good stuff. And here was a chance to actually do it. They were creating a new institution – with very few rules. There was not very much guidance in the legislation about what the office should do, so I recruited a couple of people to help me out, and uh, we just sat down and drew organization charts on a blackboard and tried to figure out what should we do, how many people did we need to hire, what kind of people should they be. It was very entrepreneurial.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, it sounds like you had a, a kind of an entrepreneurial streak in you. From the beginning, I guess.
1: I guess so, but I'd never started a new agency before, sure. and uh, it was uh, very nervous making because it was a tensely political atmosphere, and this was to be a nonpartisan agency. So we had to establish the nonpartisanship and our credibility as good analysts, and we did. I'm just guessing here, but because
0: it was established just after the Nixon years, and it was established partly as a check against executive power, right, in terms of evaluating the budget process. There had to be something about that that was also uh, quite appealing to you. Uh, In other words, that the country had just been through this really tumultuous presidency, and here was a way to tip the balance back and maybe even alleviate a lot of the country's concerns about at least this one area of policymaking. Was that something that you thought about a lot? And was that part of the reason that you got excited about it?
1: Well, yes, I certainly believe in good government and good decision making and uh, decision making based on evidence. And that was what the CBO was supposed to help the Congress do. So that was a wonderful challenge. Was it hard to convince people that
0: you would be nonpartisan given that you'd
1: worked under Lyndon Johnson? Well, yes, and more importantly, I was appointed by the Congress, which at the time had a Democratic majority, and uh, both houses were in Democratic hands, and so the Republican minority was very suspicious. They thought, this is a Democratic thing, Uh, she's not going to be fair to the minority, and the press thought that, too. The press was very suspicious of our nonpartisanship at the beginning. But two years in, President Ford, who had succeeded Nixon, lost to President Carter. And when Carter came in, he had a lot of big proposals. An important one was on energy and synthetic fuels. And the analysis done by the Congressional Budget Office did not reflect the optimism that the administration had about how this was all going to work so well. When the uh, Republicans saw that we were being analytical and not doing the administration's bidding— they suddenly became big fans and uh, began saying, isn't it wonderful to have the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office? And that really turned things around. After that, I think we we didn't have much trouble establishing our nonpartisan credibility. And in terms of how you staffed
0: the CBO, especially in those early years, did you actively look for people whose views might disagree with you to make sure that there would be a check? Or did you look for people that you trusted would not let their political leanings interfere with the quality and the substance of their analysis?
1: I looked for very competent people who cared about getting the right answers and didn't have strong political biases. And uh, we found them. There was a good group. The political leaders protected us. At first, I got all these letters from members of Congress saying, please consider my constituent So I remember saying to Senator Muskie, what do I do with these? And he said, they're just trying to get those off their desk and onto yours. (laughs) Write a polite answer saying you will consider this person, but don't bother thinking that you have to hire somebody just because he's the protege of a chairman.
0: You had what you felt like was full discretion to staff up the way you wanted I did,
1: and the full backing of the leadership the bipartisan leadership the, the Congress was much more bipartisan then than it is now, especially in the Senate. Chairman Muskie and ranking member Henry Bellman, who's a Republican from Oklahoma, worked very closely together and they both backed me up.
0: All through the years of the existence of the CBO You will sometimes get, like, the CBO's conclusions, and then one politician or another will start quibbling with the methodology used to arrive at it. A famous recent example is, like, on the issue of dynamic scoring, right? Um, I'm wondering if that quibbling started early on when you were there or if that was a later evolution and
1: one that was hard to anticipate. It started pretty early, The uh, first incidents that I remember were at the beginning of the Reagan administration because the Reagan administration came in with some pretty extreme ideas about supply-side economics and how tax cuts would make the economy just take off. We'd have enormous growth rates if we just cut taxes.
0: And their idea was that the growth rates would be so impressive that it would offset the initial loss to the budget from having cut taxes in the first place.
1: Exactly. The extreme supply-siders believed in something they called the Laffer curve, which said the uh, tax cuts for upper-income people will make them work so much harder and create so much more investment and jobs that the deficit will actually go down. Now, to the Reagan administration's credit, they didn't actually appoint people to high jobs who had such extreme views. But they were somewhat more optimistic about the tax cuts than we were, and uh, we argued about that a lot in the first year. Then in the second year of the administration, the then-budget director David Stockman came to me and said, we don't want to fight that battle again. And we, uh, we discovered that we had pretty similar views about what was going to happen to the economy.
0: Can we talk for a minute about the right ways and wrong ways to argue with the CBO's conclusions? Because it strikes me that an argument about the methodology can be a legitimate one if oh, you disagree with how it works. It's something altogether different and more worrying to see, as we've seen recently, somebody questioning the legitimacy of the institution itself. What's your sort of take on it. What is the right way to argue with the CBO? And then where is it that somebody really is unjustifiably crossing the line?
1: Well, I think that it's perfectly fine (laughs) to uh, argue about the methodology. And CBO methodology has changed over the years. And they do do dynamic scoring now in a way that we didn't when I was there. It's hard to do, but they are definitely doing it for big bills where it makes a difference. But when people question the conclusions of the CBO on the ground that they're they're biased and aren't doing a good job because they have a political agenda, I just think that's wrong. It's not true. The CBO has had a very good record of nonpartisanship over the years, and they call them like they see them. They're the referee, and the referee isn't always right. They sometimes get the call wrong, but they're certainly trying to do it right. Recently, the CBO's findings on
0: the so called Trump Care proposal showed that it would have pretty devastating consequences for the number of people who are uninsured. And this seemed to have a fairly important impact on the debate itself. And it was after that that a lot of people started taking the line that the CBO is biased, that the CEO is partisan, that it's never been right, that kind of thing. Were you at any point worried about the institution itself? Have you seen this level of acrimony towards a CBO
1: before? And what was your just general reaction to the response? I thought the response was overblown, but typical of a new presidency. We saw that at the beginning of the Reagan administration. In fact, the Reagan administration came in and uh, began floating the idea that they wanted to replace me, the chairman of the uh, Budget Committee, then uh, Pete Domenici. And the uh, other leaders said, no, you... (laughs) the CBO doesn't work for the president. The CBO works for us. And it's not up to you who is the CBO director. There's a term, and I was halfway through my second term at that point. I thought that was more or less what was happening at the beginning of the Trump administration. They didn't understand who the CBO worked for. In fact, the CBO did not come under serious fire from the Congress itself.
0: I want to fast forward a bit to the 1990s. You headed up Bill Clinton's Office of Management and Budget, if I'm not mistaken. But before that, you published a book called Reviving the American Dream, where you chronicled widespread dissatisfaction. Towards the end of the 90s and just the very beginning of the 2000s, you did have a period of fairly robust economic growth, which seemed to maybe delay some of the consequences that you talked about in the book. Do you think that a lot of the things you worried about back then apply again now and in the years following, you know, the big recession of 2008, 2009?
1: At that time, we were worried about the growing budget deficit and its contribution to the debt. That problem did get greatly ameliorated during the 90s because we had a good budget process and a bipartisan agreement that we wanted to reduce the budget deficit. The Republicans who, in 1994, recaptured the Congress were committed, perhaps even more committed than the Clinton administration was, to bringing the deficit down. So we were able to work with them. They had different ideas about how to do it than we had, but we had some good tools, the uh, budget rules made it necessary to work within totals on the appropriations and there was something called the paygo rules which said you can't cut taxes or increase benefits in in entitlement programs unless you offset the impact on the deficit so with those rules and with a common goal The Congress and the President worked pretty well together through the 90s. And then, of course, we had the good luck that the economy was doing extremely well. And uh, we had a stock market boom bubble that was generating a lot of capital gains and capital gains taxes. So our initial goal was to cut the deficit in half. And then we said we wanted to reach balance by 2002, we got balance in 98. Uh, it was, we had a surplus for the end of the 90s. Now, the problem of debt has resurfaced. And in fact, we didn't solve it at that time. We knew even at the end of the 90s that when the baby boom generation retired, which is now, the upward pressure on spending for Medicare and Social Security and Medicaid would be very great. The deficits would come back. But that seemed like a long time in the future at at that time. Now it's not. It's part of the imminent problem. It's not a catastrophic problem right now. But we have a much higher ratio of debt to GDP than we had then because of the Great Recession and the deficits that it generated. Mm -hmm. So as you look ahead, we have to do something to control the rising debt. I served on two commissions to work on this problem, one appointed by President Obama, the Simpson-Bowles Commission, and one that my friend Pete Domenici and I created at the Bipartisan Policy Center, that was composed of Republicans and Democrats, but formers, uh, not people who were actually in public office. Both commissions worked on this problem and came out in about the same place. We have to restrain the growth of entitlement programs, especially health care programs, over time. And we're going to need more money from the tax system. We're going to need to reform the tax system in a way that makes it fairer and more pro-growth, but uh, leaves us with some more revenue. Because unless we're willing to cut benefits to older people, and nobody is willing to do that in the political system, then we're going to need some more revenue.
0: In the aftermath of the Great Recession, a big part of the reason for the rising deficits in those early years was just that obviously there was a collapse in revenues and a lot of the automatic stabilization programs also kicked in. And it seemed like it was right at the time to prioritize growth. Something I I don't have a great handle on is how much urgency to attach to the problem of future projected debt and deficits, in part because economists seem to be constantly reevaluating that, especially for countries that have their own currency which makes it, I think, a little bit more tolerable to have a higher debt load for a longer period of time. Because I'm wondering what you're
1: borrowing in their own currency, which exactly, is what we're exactly. Doing. Yeah.
0: And I'm wondering uh, if that's something that you uh, think about and analyze quite a bit. And if so, do you still think that this is something that needs to be addressed immediately? And how do we think about prioritizing it versus other goals?
1: It isn't an either or. We need to adopt a set of policies. That will reduce the growth of the ratio of debt to GDP because if that just keeps growing, we're in trouble. And there are two ways to do that you can grow the GDP faster, and you can grow the debt slower. And we need to do both. And the reason that it's important to get the debt coming down in the longer run future, the reason it's important to take action now to do that is that the things you are driven to do are moderating the growth in health care spending for the elderly, for example, or Social Security benefits, especially for upper-income people. People need to plan for those things. You can't just cut things suddenly. So if you're changing the formulas that control those uh, benefits in the future, that needs to be done now and phased in very slowly. It's not that the action, the deficit-reducing action has to be taken right away, but we have to change the laws now so that when we get there in 15 or 20 years, it will uh, not be such a difficult problem to solve.
0: Can we turn it to monetary policy? You spent a few years at the Fed as vice chair in the late 90s, and you were, uh, I think, the point person for international issues, or one of the point I people, right? I was
1: one of them. We, the international uh, job is a big one at yeah. the Fed. It's a big world. Especially back then. Uh, <laughs> but I did spend quite a lot of time interacting, especially in uh, – the meetings in Switzerland that the central bankers have about every six weeks. Alan Greenspan didn't want to go to Europe that often, so I went to about half of them.
0: I guess I'm wondering what you think about the fact that the Fed seems to be more internationally entwined with the central banks and with the economies of the rest of the world now than it ever has been, because uh, through the dollar channel, right, through the fact that the Fed now has obviously a much larger supervisory role um, and the potential for contagion from one financial system to the next, right? Are you at all worried by this trend, or do you think it's simply something that comes with being the central bank of the world's dominant economy?
1: Well, it's something that comes with the increasing importance of global trade and global financial interaction. Mm-hmm. And we've seen that dramatized over my career as a central banker, which was short, as you said, but it did include the Asian financial crisis. And that started in a sort of obscure way. It started in Thailand. And then all of a sudden, we were realizing how interconnected the world is, because this uh, crisis kind of ricocheted around the world, not just in Asia, but to Russia, to South Africa, And all of a sudden, countries that you might not have thought of were in deep trouble. So I think the Federal Reserve works well with the other major central banks, the European Central Bank with uh, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan and the People's Bank of China, that's inevitable. I mean, unless they work together, this whole thing will come crashing down again.
0: What do you think about all of the new innovations in monetary policy that we've seen in just the last few years, the different regimes that central banks are now contemplating, the use of quantitative easing, forward guidance, moving beyond just interest rate management and inflation targeting?
1: Well, I think we were very lucky that we had Ben Bernanke at the helm of the Federal Reserve at the time the financial crisis happened. Now, I happen to be one who thinks the financial crisis could have been avoided if we'd done a much better job thinking about the consequences of this housing bubble and other things. But once we had it, Ben was the right person to be there because he'd done a lot of thinking about the uh, collapse in 29 and its aftermath, and also about the problem of what do you do as a central bank when you're trying to turn the economy around in a crisis and get it growing again, and you've already brought the short-term interest rate, which is the main tool you have, down to zero. You can't go below zero. What do you do? Well, What you can do, and the Fed did very effectively, was operate to buy bonds and lots of different assets and keep the downward pressure on short rates and long rates. And that was very effective. It would have been better if we'd had a more aggressive fiscal policy to go along with it But by that time, the administration and the Congress especially was getting over-worried about the debt and pulling back on fiscal policy, which put more burden on the Fed.
0: You think fiscal policy prematurely started withdrawing stimulus? It should have been much bigger.
1: I do think that. I thought that at the time... But I think it's really quite obvious with with hindsight. Mm -hmm. Uh,
0: You said a second ago that you thought the financial crisis could have been prevented. Do you think that monetary policy should have taken the lead role in preventing it, or do you think that uh, it had more to do with things like lending standards and what was happening in the financial sector?
1: All of the above, but mostly regulation. I think the egregious decline in mortgage lending standards was something we should never have allowed, Nobody really thought through what was happening in the banking sector as the big financial institutions securitized all those lousy mortgages and sold them all over the world as though they were good as gold. That was going to lead to catastrophe, and nobody really thought it through. There are a lot of culprits in this story including the rating agencies, including the risk takers at lots of banks and the regulatory agencies, but we shouldn't do that again.
0: I have kind of an open-ended question that might be uh, tough to answer, but I'm asking it because you've had the perspective of having been a policymaker during so many different presidential administrations, not just the ones that you directly served under, but you know, for instance, when you were a CBO, and then it was Ford, Carter, and Reagan, How do you define, to the extent that it's even discernible, the economic approach of the Trump administration? And do you have any frames of reference or comparison, thinking back on all the other different presidents that you've witnessed trying to enact economic policy?
1: We have never had a president who had never been in government before at any level, and who'd never really had any experience with public policy or with economic policy. So I think the president is winging it and trying to figure it out as he goes along. It's like changing a tire on a moving car or something. He's brought in advisors, many of whom are very competent and experienced, but they don't necessarily agree with each other. Yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> He has a spectrum from uh, Mike Mulvaney, who now has the Office of Management and Budget job, who is a small government conservative and really wants to cut the size of government. And then he has some experienced financial types like Gary Cohn, who may have a quite different experience and point of view. And he's got to sort this all out. So we'll see what happens. One of the issues on which
0: so many economists seem to be reassessing their views has obviously been trade. The idea that overall free trade is still a very good thing, but that there are segments of the population that are very hard hit, and crucially, localities where the labor markets don't really adjust all that quickly. Uh, I'm wondering if your own views on trade have also changed over time, or maybe you had that kind of caveated perspective early on and now everybody's moving in your direction.
1: Well, it's certainly true that a combination of factors, it's not all trade, it's technological change and it's other kinds of change, have impacted people's lives often very negatively over quite a long time. I mean, technological change isn't new. The problems of the automobile industry and the steel industry go back to the 1980s where a lot of people lost jobs because it wasn't as profitable to make cars in the United States as it was in Japan for a while, but then the Japanese figure out we can make them here closer to the market. Automobile production and steel production don't take as many man hours as they did. That's not really a trade problem, it's a technological change problem, and it's like the ones we've experienced before, when agriculture became mechanized and when the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution put a lot of weavers and spinners out of work. So this is not a new thing. But we haven't dealt with it very well. And in recent years, it has impacted very heavily the old industrial states of the upper Midwest.
0: If you could choose one thing to do that we aren't doing enough of, what would be your preferred policy for helping these people?
1: Training and education. It's not going to work for everybody. I think where you have, as in the coal mines, for instance, a workforce that is mostly aging, it's very hard to say to a 50-year-old coal miner, we're going to retrain you to do something else. So I think you have a generation that will have to be rescued in some sense, but coal miners don't want their kids going into coal mining. It's dangerous, horribly difficult work, and they're not healthy. And so creating other jobs, and they won't necessarily be in the same places, is the challenge.
0: What has either surprised you most, or in what issue have you changed your mind throughout your career, something that you didn't expect to get turned around on? With respect to economics,
1: I mean. Well, I'm not sure I have a good answer to that. I have gotten in recent years much more interested in how we fix our political system because I think these economic problems are not that difficult. There are lots of centrist, sensible economic policies, including improving education and improving training and investing in infrastructure. These are all things that we ought to be doing and ought to be doing in a big way and doing well, and that's not a new idea. The reason we're not doing them is that our political system is so broken. Things that used to be kind of no-brainers, like an infrastructure bill, we can't get the two parties to agree on or even to talk about. So my obsession at the moment is, how do we get our political system working again? And I think it is largely a question of getting people back to the realization that they have to compromise across political and ideological lines that is especially true under our Constitution with its checks and balances. It's true everywhere, but it's a little easier in a parliamentary system like the UK to let one party just take over. But our system isn't built that way, and it's built on compromise. And unless we can get the two parties talking to each other and saying, okay, we'll do this if you'll do that, and here's a compromise plan that is nobody's favorite thing, but will be a consensus policy that may work, then I think we're in trouble.
0: Uh, one final question. I've seen that you've written a lot lately about health care policy. You've always written quite a bit about local
1: governance issues. Um, yes. What's next? What are you working on now? Can you give us a little bit of a teaser? Well, I am working on health care and how we solve this problem of what happens now when we've had a reasonably good experience with the Affordable Care Act, but it does need some changes. And in my opinion, it doesn't need to be repealed. I don't care what you call it. You can call it repeal and replace, but it's the replace That's important. So I'm working on that, and I'm working on what I hope will be a little book on uh, how to fix the political system and how to get us talking to each other again.
0: Alice, thanks so much for being on Alpha Chat.
1: I've enjoyed it.
0: And that is the end of my chat with Alice Rivlin. Give us a call at 917-551-5012. For those of our listeners overseas, that is country code plus one because we're based in New York. And you can email us at alphachat at ft.com. Leave us a review on iTunes, people. It really does help others find out about Alpha Chat, and we always see those reviews and appreciate them. And finally, at ft.com forward slash alphachat, you can get show notes for this episode and all other previous episodes of Alpha Chat. Amy Keene producer and editor of this podcast, is the first director of the Alpha Chat budget office. True story, may there never be another. And extra special thanks to Lauren Leatherby also for a great job of editing this interview.